0: From the thrilling pages of life rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history
1: called The Searchers.
2: You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies! <laughs> That's right! Another episode of Sanity at the Movies are quarterly, not quarterly, quarterly in a month, in the last quarter of the month the final tuesday of the month we talk about movies right jake it's right nathan pastor jacob Mensels over there the master of 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 watching cinema and talking about it if he's gonna talk someone's gonna have to turn a knob someone might have to work a dial even and that's someone well at least i'm not dialing into work nathan <laughs> uh, i'll be editing that out uh it's benjamin salzer the old moze of the saga here i am nathan <laughs> I'm
0: ready to go. <laughs> he, just <laughs> wants rocking this, chair. he just wants his rocking chair. That's all I want.
2: And speaking of rocking, there's me, Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, agent provocateur, expert in all things, period. Guys, this is Sanity at the Movies, as you know. It's a little bit more of a casual episode, and we're going to talk about a movie. Yeah. What movie are we going to talk about,
1: Jake? The Searchers. John yep. Ford, John Wayne. John Ford, Lots John of Wayne. John Johns.
2: Classic. What number on the AFI list of greatest movies is The Searchers? I'm going to guess top 10. I think you're right. It is number 12. Came out in 1956, and it's an American Technicolor Vista Vision Western film directed by John Ford. Jake, tell us the story of The Searchers in case someone hasn't seen it before. There will be spoilers, folks, because we can't really talk about this movie without talking about the big thing that happens in it.
1: John Wayne is Ethan. Hunt. You want to say Hunt. <laughs> I do want to say Hunt. Six Mission to possible movies in. He works for IMF. He's constantly going rogue. Ethan's backstory is he was in the Confederate Army. He's kind of a bad dude. He went off the grid for a couple of years, presumably robbing trains or stagecoaches or some other thing. And he shows up at his brother's ranch that he's been, I guess, trying to stay away from, probably because he's in love with his brother's wife and she's in love with him. There are. Cattle being stolen, a posse's put together. All of the men in the area go off trying to figure out what happened. In the meantime, Comanche Indians come through. They kill Ethan's family, and the two little girls are missing. And then they go off looking for them. Eventually, it's just Ethan and his sort of adopted nephew, mm-hmm. who's the adoptive brother of the the two girls. Uh, his parents were killed. He's part Indian. I think he's an eight. An eight. But he's not Comanche. He's what? An eighth Cherokee or something like that. Or something some I, other. I wish I yeah. remembered. It sort of colors the movie. Ethan and Marty spend five years looking for the girls. The tension in drama is... Ethan's kind of a bad dude. He just wants to kill everybody.
2: Very dark character for John Wayne. Maybe he's yeah. darkest.
1: And that's pretty clear early on. He just wants vengeance. He doesn't care. Uh, by the time you get to, we get to, to catch up with the Comanche Indians who raped and killed one of the girls, we don't know what's happened to the other girl, but we find out she's still with them. She's been there. She was like seven or eight, and now five years have passed. She's, in his eyes, irredeemably corrupted, and he wants to kill her. And will he or won't he kill her? Mm How is this all going to go down? And then he finds a shred of humanity and picks her up in his arms and says, let's go home. And everything ends happily ever after for everyone except for our hero who can never be happy right he's always stuck on the outside looking in as the final scene
2: you got that famous last shot one of the most famous last shots in all of cinema where he stands outside the door framed by the door wilderness behind him everyone's happy and celebrating he turns he walks away the door shuts on him ethan the perpetual existential outsider hashtag whatever
0: which is also the way the movie starts an iconic opening shot yes. with uh, someone actually is Martha, the woman. He loved looking looking out the door as, as Ethan rides in from the distance.
2: <sighs> Fellas, you want to hear some context about this movie? Love to. Boy, do I ever. <laughs> I've been
0: searching. Maybe we found the answer, Nathan, with your context. Yes.
2: <laughs> I'm like the Comanche war party of context.
1: <laughs>
2: okay, let's talk about, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the Western genre. I want to talk about John Ford, the director. I want to talk about Mr. John Wayne, the actor. The Western genre has been a big deal. It's not so much of a big deal now, but although you could argue that a lot of the stuff that we enjoy and watch today, like superhero movies and stuff like that, is, is the successors of the things that were being done with the Westerns. And Maybe we'll argue some of that as we talk about it. But the Western has been around since the 1800s. In the 19th century, you had what people may have heard of called penny dreadfuls, these little cheap Books that were sold that had, uh, they would later turn into the pulp magazines of the early 20th century that had these wild, lurid stories, adventure stories, drama stories. But a lot of those stories were Western stories. People have always been intrigued since the time that the West was actually happening, the time that Americans were moving into the West in the 1800s. People have been telling stories and excited about the stories even before any time had passed. Legends were springing up about, you know, I mean, people like Wild Bill Hickok, Annie Oakley, Billy the Kid, some of these people people were pretty good at self-promotion and some of these legends spread. During their lifetimes, there were these wild stories being told about the West and people were just always interested in it. And then when movies came along, silent movies, there were hundreds of silent Westerns that were made. They were a big deal until... We get into the 1920s and then the 1930s with sound western. The genre just went away. Like big Hollywood kind of came out. The studio system began, and the studios weren't really interested in making westerns. It was kind of considered a cheap B movie genre for a while. And we'll talk about John Wayne, but that's where he he kind of got his start making B movies. But then in 1939, you have a couple big hits: "Destry Rides Again" with Jimmy Stewart, "Stagecoach" with John Wayne, John Wayne's breakout role directed by John Wayne, and a couple of others. And suddenly, where well, it was directed by John Ford starring John Wayne who had been a B movie actor here to four and then suddenly westerns explode and it becomes a huge genre starting in 39 into the 50s and then into the 60s westerns were just huge 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 you have no idea in 1959 there were 26 primetime westerns we have three stations back then right ABC uh, NBC and CBS 26 shows about the West and you guys, you guys know the shows. It's Gunsmoke, it's Maverick, it's Rawhide, it's Bonanza, it's Have Gun Will Travel. Never seen any of those um, though. But you're aware of Yeah, them yeah. As, I know the names. As a cultural thing. Sure. I mean imagine like how many superhero stories I guess we probably do have and we'll we'll keep coming back to I'm sure we'll keep coming back to comparing this to the hoop superhero genre because it's the closest comparison we have.
1: We have superhero shows I couldn't begin to count them all. Yeah, I mean there's probably at least we we have there's like five or six Marvel ones on Netflix plus the, all the DC ones. Right. Plus just other random Yeah, it's the exactly. old Superboy show I used to watch. I, as a kid. either either superhero or space opera stuff.
2: It's just it's huge. It's all over yeah. the place.
1: But imagine if we lived in a
2: smaller less entertainment-saturated environment, and there was way less content providers. The ratio of Western content being created was actually bigger than, I mean, 26 shows on primetime in 1959 about western themes i mean studios just had standing western sets they had like the old saloon they had if you start to watch a lot of westerns if you're someone that enjoys watching these things you'll start to see the same locations the same dusty towns the same saloons saloons yeah show up in these movies because studios just had standing sets and they could be used by the tv of the time they could be used by the movies and then they had these great locations john ford always liked to shoot in monument valley which is like the quintessential way it's got all those rocky i don't know what you what do you call those things um Sorry, I'm not a geologist. Mesa's, Mesas, yes. (laughs) I'm not a geologist, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) So people really loved that stuff, and I don't know how much we want to talk about why or what that means or... or why it was a big deal. I mean, we can speculate all day. I think it's kind of the same question as why is superhero, why are superheroes big now? I think it's probably a lot of the same reasons. You have these Westerns provide these real clean sort of moral situations and tests for people. You know, there's there's real clear bad guys, good guys. And then you can do interesting things, which the searchers does. But there's there's a clarity in the storytelling that it prov- provides you which i think storytellers like and people like i think for little boys and for men there's there's the cool heroes there's the wish fulfillment of just being a cool gunslinger of of taming the wild west of i mean it's the reason we like han solo it's the reason we like a lot of this stuff I think for a lot of people then as now, it's a, it was just a world that they wanted to live in, you know, and especially you watch some of those old 40s and 50s and some of the TV shows, the West is portrayed as like, now we have these revisionist Westerns that are telling us how terrible it was and how much the Native Americans were mistreated and how it was all bloody and terrible and savage. And you can see the searchers starting to have a conscience about that. But there's a lot of those movies that are just wish fulfillment, you know, wouldn't it be fun to just live in a clean... Wholesome American town where the school marm is leaving a pie on a window for the boy that's coming, calling in between some gunfights with some really clearly evil ranch hands and all it's, that kind of stuff. It's
1: still the world of Dad and Grandpa. Yeah, at that point. Yeah, like it is to nineteen thirty nine or nineteen forties or nineteen fifties America what nineteen fifties and sixties America is for us. Yeah, and that's that's a big part of it too.
2: Yeah. Well, you have to remember, I think it's their 1950s, really. It's the way we think of the 1950s is the way. And you have to remember, they are not that many generations removed from some idea of what that would have been like. I mean, we're a few more generations removed now. The West seems more distant. But to them, some people in the 1950s might have been able to talk about their grandpa or their great grandpa. Certainly
1: remember the replacement of Horse and Carriage... Absolutely. Yes, I mean, there's uh, people today that are still mobiles. that have
2: been a lot. You know, um, we just had someone in our church's relative die who was 101 years old, and she would have been alive what before sound movies? Certainly. I mean, yeah. she may have lived to she she before the internet, before a lot of things. So there's still people today that remember the world changing. But imagine how much more for someone in the 1950s and 60s they might have felt a nostalgia or a yearning for this world that. A gone away. And they were able to...
1: Pre-World War II, pre-World War I. Pre-any Things world that they had actually lived through and been terrified by.
2: And then you think about how complex the world was becoming with the Cold War, with the war, World War II and the death camps and Hitler and all that stuff, how ugly the world suddenly was revealing itself to be. You how can complex
1: forg- our place as Americans was in the world. Yeah. You it, know, it is a simpler time when... Americans were just here and the the enemies were clear and we had to tame the west.
2: Right. And we can argue all day about whether it was actually a simple time, but the larger point is in the story. That's what nostalgia you, does. You, you nostalgia can't always blame.
1: makes things simpler
2: right. than they were. People liked to think about it that way. And I think the western form basically, I would say, I'm 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 no expert in this, but my guess is it died because people got a conscience about that kind of thing and they sort of lost their ability to just lose themselves in the fantasy. You see it in 1969, I th- I would say the, the real original Westerns die with The Wild Bunch, which is an incredibly nihilistic and violent movie, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which isn't violent or nihilistic necessarily, but it's sarcastic. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm-hmm. Kid is the first meta-Western, and it's got this hip soundtrack, and it's got uh, these young, cool, sexy stars, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and they're just being sexy and quippy and it's yeah.
0: like, it's like, it has the nostalgia for the old Westerns. Right.
2: But mixed in with some kind of snide social commentary maybe. and Yeah. And kind of, it's more of a commentary. It's not just playing it straight anymore. It's like, you no. can't. You can't make a private eye movie now without commenting, whether you mean to or not, on the private eye movies that came before in the 1940s. You can't just make it. You can pretend like they don't exist, but, but you, the one thing you can't do is go back in time and just make one thoughtlessly. I mean, it's the same thing with lots of genre. You know, you can't make a vampire movie without thinking about Dracula with his cape and his widow's peak and everything. Whether you choose for your dra- your vampire to be like that or be not like that at all is your choice, but you have to deal with it one way or another. And that's kind of where we are with Westerns. Any Western that's made now is a post-Western. It's a commentary on the Western and it can say, hey, the West was great. Those values were all American and it was wonderful. And We need to get back to that, and we miss John Wayne. You can do that, or you can do what a lot of people do with the, like, actually, it was terrible, and it was bloody, and it was awful, and we need to understand the point of view of the natives, and blah. You can do all that kind of stuff, too.
0: Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven being a prime example of that. Well, that's an example of a filmmaker
2: who did some of the earlier kinds of Westerns coming out of the John Wayne school and then decided he needed to apologize for it and say, actually, that was violent and wrong, and it was not as simple. I think the other thing that's important to note about the Westerns Western as a form is just that it's a wonderful form, just like superhero movies are now in that it's elastic enough to allow for a lot of invention and for you to allow you to do different things. But it's also utterly predictable. And it has rules and it has character types and archetypes and things that you can keep coming back to. So you see any Western movie, and you pretty much know what's going to happen. And you pretty much know where you're at. And you pretty much know who's who. I think people like that. I think I like that. I, I would submit that whether you admit it or not, you guys like that in different things. I think it's the reason we like blues songs or pop songs or country mm-hmm. songs. There's something comforting about a thing that is predictable and yet fresh. And that's what mm-hmm. a lot of great pop art does. Is it, you know your you know you listen to a great pop song, like even if you've never heard it before, it sounds like something you've heard a million times before, and yet it can also be bold and fresh and interesting within those rigid confines. And I think that's what people like about the you know critics can turn up their noses about the superhero movie, but super superhero movies. But th- that's one of the reasons people like them. You know where you're at, you know who's who, you know what's going to happen. And that's actually, it can be boring when it's done poorly, but it can be refreshing when it's done nice. And if, you know, Marvel's proved nothing else to us, you can actually adhere to the formula and find a lot of fun inventive ways to
1: different takes or spins or yeah, absolutely.
2: This one's more a little bit darker. This one's a little bit lighter. This one's a little more meta. This one's a little more that. And you can just find ways to shake it up while still giving the audience basically what they desire from a superhero movie or from a Western movie. So I don't know exactly why it went away, but it really did go away. It became violent. It became self-conscious.
1: I think it just went the way that the culture was going... I mean, culture runs in cycles and... This was dad's thing and dad's not cool anymore. Right. <laughs> or this was grandpa's thing and grandpa's not cool anymore. Or whatever, whatever it is. This is dad's idea of a hero. And now I've become aware of the sins of my father. And part of how I deconstruct my dad is by deconstructing his heroes. It's like field of dreams. Right. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> huh. Well, and that's what we're going to find ourselves doing today. There's no way we can talk about John Wayne and the Searchers without deconstructing our own ideas of manhood, of fatherhood, and probably of our own dads, whether we, confess to our audience that that's what we're doing or not, I think it's just inevitable in talking about a movie like this. I mean, we probably all have memories of of watching these kinds of movies with grandpa or dad or something like, or some association
1: like that. Yeah. whose dad and or grandpa wasn't in the Westerns and didn't love John Wayne. Is there such a person? My dad
0: loved him and I I never did as a kid. I'm a lot more interested now.
2: Very dad. That's, that's the best way to put it. It's like something Saturday morning, lazy Saturday morning. There's no chores to do. What are you going to do? There's going to be a Western on TV and you're going to watch it. It's that kind of thing. You know, there's and and, and dads to this day, uh, you know, I know a lot of people I have some in mind right now that just like to watch Westerns. They just enjoy them and and they just like living in that world. You could turn on the most boring Western in the world and they'd like it just because it's it's fun for them. So that's, I guess, everything we need to say about the Western as a genre, unless you guys have anything you want to add or subtract or anything like that.
1: No. Mm -hmm.
2: to it. Uh, John Ford, famous American director, people like uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Martin Scorsese and all the kind of 70s movie brat guys point to this guy as a seminal influence. They directly quote his work, which in quote in this context, if you don't know, means they stage shots and it's cinematography cinema, do the cinema, exactly like he did. And he was known for these clean outdoor shots. The The scene of Luke coming back to Uncle uh, Owen and Aunt Baru's charred corpses on the homestead is very The Searchers.
1: Close-ups of Harrison Ford's face in Raiders of the Lost Ark are, are going to be very similar to, to the way that John Wayne's face is framed. Yep. A's All it. that sort of thing.
2: exactly exactly. the
1: wide sweeping landscape with the sunset you know whether it's a binary sunset or a normal sunset
2: (laughs) yep They say when David Lean was making Lawrence of a rain Lawrence of a rainbow, Is that what they say <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence was did struggle with that. I think a little bit, but um, Lawrence of Arabia. When David Lean was making Lawrence of Arabia, they say he watched the, he watched The Searchers just like on repeat, whatever the version of repeat back then. He had the film played for himself constantly because he wanted to know how to shoot men in the desert, and The Searchers is the movie to watch. Probably now it's Lawrence of Arabia, but then before the guy that made Lawrence of Arabia watched The Searchers because it is the movie for men against a landscape. Although there's some weird stuff in the movie. There's that part at the end I don't know whether you guys caught it or not. I knew to look for it because I'd read about it. They only had Natalie Wood for so much time. So John Wayne chases her like on Monument Valley. And then when he picks her up, they're suddenly in a completely different location Whoa, with a really weird background. The French critics tried to say like, it's because it's all a theater of the mind. And John Ford was just like, no, it's because <laughs> Natalie Wood was only available for <laughs> this or that day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's some horribly mismatched stuff. But there again, stuff I just like
1: that all through the movie. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this sort of thing before. Exactly. They just just didn't care.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They just didn't care. They didn't expect that you were going to have the Mm -hmm. movie on Blu-ray and be able to back it up and watch it again and again and again. So John Ford, he's an interesting fella, a man of contradictions, perhaps. He, well, here, I'll tell you guys a little story about John Ford, because I think this pretty much sums him up. Sometime in the 1930s, Ford's already a big director. He's got his trademark, eye patch that he wore because of some kind of eye injury. I think he could see out of the eye. He had to just wear the patch a lot. Also, I think we'll find John Ford was the kind of guy that just wanted to have that kind of image. So he's known as this craggly old man with tinted glasses and an eye patch over, I think it was his left eye. Maybe it was his right eye. I guess I should know that, but I'm picturing it a different way now. Anyway, he's, he's this craggly old man with an eye patch. And he was always a craggly old man from the, the eye patch. He's stalking into his office at Universal, and he's accosted by this old out-of-work actor who had been like a studio contract player back in the day, had probably been in a lot of those silent movies, just playing an extra or something like that. And this guy begs John Ford for $200 for an operation for his wife who's sick. And John Ford gets angry. He says, how dare you? He pushes the guy down. The onlookers are horrified. John, John Ford stalks into his office. The old actor goes away in tears. And then John Ford's assistant runs out, runs around a different way, finds the guy, says, Here's a check for a thousand dollars, has the John Ford's chauffeur limousine pulls up, takes the guy to his house where there's an ambulance waiting. John Ford pays for the operation, gives the guy money, ends up like, I think setting the guy and his wife up in a house with a pension for life. John Ford's a softie, actually he did not want anybody to know it. He cultivated an image to survive in the cutthroat world of Hollywood or whatever as a hard-drinking Irish son of a you-know-what is what John Ford wanted people to, th- to think of him. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. There's different stories from different people, a lot of legends about him. Um, he was called Admiral Ford. He was actually in World War II. He served as a director. I don't know what he would have been called, but he directed a film crew for the Navy, went into battle, was there for some, I don't think, maybe the landing? I don't know, he was there for part of D-Day, got a shrapnel in- injury, was under fire, filming documentary footage for the Navy, for the armed, for basically making propaganda movies, was his job. So he was a tough guy, but also some of that was put on. There was a lot of rumors at the time, and now, of course, they played up that he was gay. Maureen O'Hara said he was, or said she saw him kiss a man, which Maureen O'Hara, you know, is no one to be discounted. She's, of course, John Wayne's, the greatest of John Wayne's leading ladies, the red-haired lady from Quiet Man and McClintock. And that is a fact, by the way, that she's the greatest of John Wayne's leading ladies. There's no disputing that. question. Even in McClintock, which is a very dumb movie, she's pretty great. Yep. Yeah. What else do we need to know about John Ford? I I think just knowing that story and knowing that he was a softie who had to play tough kind of actually tells you a lot about what you need to know about him because that's what his movies are. They can be so corny and sentimental. I mean, The Searchers is the perfect movie to talk about this because it's just like so maudlin- so lame. The comedy is so broad in some places. And then it's really dark and subtle and psychological and real yeah. and gritty and mean. You have these male characters always in his movies that can't say what they really, you know, they're laconic, that don't say what they mean, that are reserved. You know, I mean, he kind of helped create this image both for himself and for the characters in his movies of American manhood as this kind, you know, we don't pain doesn't hurt kind of thing, as Patrick Swayze says in Roadhouse. Um, we don't
1: talk about it.
2: Yeah, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about our feelings. We, have to, we
1: quietly bear right. it all.
2: And that's the whole thing. And you got the whole famous scene in The Quiet Man where Victor McLaughlin and John Wayne punch each other across half of Ireland, and then they're the best of friends. And that's, that's how John Wayne mm-hmm. wanted people to think of him. Whether that's actually who he was is up for debate. He came of age, worked in, as Hollywood did, he worked, he directed something like 140 movies in his lifetime, but I think Ford. at least- Ford. Ford did. Sorry, did I say Wayne? Mm-hmm. I'm going to do that the whole time. J- John Ford directed something like 140 movies in his lifetime, but I think 60 of them were lost because silent movies just simply weren't preserved, which is a shame.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, film is not a great medium. It deteriorates over time and people weren't thinking that We would be looking to these things for any kind of artistic or historical value. It was just entertainment. So a lot of this stuff wasn't properly preserved. But uh, obviously, all the great movies that he's remembered for are, and those are things like, people you may have seen some of them, even if you didn't know they were him. How Green Was My Valley, The Searchers, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, My Darling Clementine, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Grapes of Matt, Wrath. And Grapes um, of Math. What I said, <laughs> he like started
1: to say Grapes of Math. Grapes of Math, yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Treading out the wine crest where the Grapes of Math are stored. You know how it is. And the the best of those movies, by the way, The Quiet Man. Yeah. That's all just a fact. Just like uh, Maureen O'Hara is John Wayne's greatest leading lady. Everyone I
1: agree 100%. Yeah. Did you say Stagecoach?
2: Stagecoach, yeah. I mean, I guess I alluded to it earlier, but yeah, Stagecoach. I mean, he did a lot of great movies.
1: That would be the only. Uh... The searchers, stagecoach, and the quiet man would be the ones that would people would fight over, right? But it is the quiet man.
2: Yeah, I think so. Well, actually,
1: for years and years and years... Except the AFI doesn't think so, but...
2: For years, critics' polls said that Grapes of Wrath was the great American movie before Citizen Kane at a certain point won out. But Citizen Kane took a while to catch on and for people to realize how brilliant it was. For a long time, the sentimental favorite of most critics was actually *The Graves of Wrath*, which I've never seen. I don't really like the novel, and I've never bothered to watch the I've, movie. I saw I've it a long it. time ago. Yeah, a long time ago for me too. I'm sure. I mean, he also did *Young Lincoln*, which is great. Oh yeah. Uh, what's the other one? *My Darling Clementine* with Henry Ford, which is great. Um, Henry Fonda. Yeah, with Henry Fonda. What did I say?
1: Henry, Henry Ford. Ford. Henry Ford. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> John Wayne directed 140 films starring Henry, <laughs> Henry Ford. Ford. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, let's talk about our, the third ingredient that went into this great film, which would be Mr. Marion Mitchell Morrison, also known as... John Wayne. John Wayne. That's right. He is an interesting guy because he is an icon. He's a stamp. He's a commemorative plate. He is your dad. He's he's John Wayne. What else can one say about he's him?
1: He's a portrait that hung on the wall yeah. of your house before your parents divorced. Is he really? Yes. <laughs> well, there you go. He's a bust that your dad had in his office. Yeah. Or my dad did, at least. Mm.
2: So you're not talking, talking hypothetically right now. You're saying that's how you're... These
1: dead. are real true facts. Yeah. Well, and, and I knows.
2: accept him as such, and he accepts him <laughs> as such, too, I think. Uh, but we'll get to that. But there are certain... like well, I, We've argued about this before. I don't know whether it ever made it to air. But, you know, like Matt Damon, I, there's no question in my mind that he cannot do kung fu like Jason Bourne can. There's no There's equally no question in my mind that John Wayne can simply do everything that John Wayne can do. To me, John Wayne simply is what he played. And even though I know that's not true, like, in my brain, my heart still just kind of thinks it's John Wayne. Like, he's John Wayne. I mean, he is. He's a force of nature. Yeah. And I think John Wayne was aware of that fact, like I said, but we'll talk about it. Uh, Marion Mitchell Morrison was a gentleman who was a big, beefy, handsome guy. He attended the University of Southern California and was going to be a football player, but he got benched because of a broken collarbone which he was ashamed to tell his coach that he got the collarbone broken body surfing, actually. He was a noted socialist, on campus. He was very much kind of a left-wing guy, which would change very rapidly. He claimed later in life that it changed by the end of college because he began to see, oh, these social programs don't actually uh, work. People need to take responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Hashtag proto Jordan Peterson. But people have speculated about that. Um, Jordan
1: Peterson, the kind of hero John Wayne might condone. Yes, exactly. I've Mm -hmm. heard.
2: We, we, We had a line in our song because John Wayne Who else do you use? Maybe Clint Eastwood would be our generation's that guy. or Not really, though, I think. Because they're both passe now, but the one that you go back to is John Wayne. Wayne, not Clint Eastwood. So he broke his collarbone just as a favor. I think the coach got him a job working as like a prop boy, as just a, a furniture moving guy at the studio, which led to some bit parts at Fox, Fox studio, director named Raul Walsh, who's one of these legendary guys. I think he had an eye patch. A lot of these guys had eye patches for some, for, for being movie makers of all things. Uh, a lot of the famous early movie makers had eye patches. Raul Walsh saw him and decide, and just saw his physical build actually saw him moving some furniture and decided to put make him the lead in a B-Western at the time. Uh, this was before Westerns as a genre had broken out. Again, they were just kind of this, they, they'd turn out these B-movies. You had like hop along Cassidy kind of stuff. So he puts him in this movie. John Ford actually saw him. He always, I think John Ford was called, John Wayne called him Grandpappy in pro- Private Life. John Ford chose him, saw his potential, mentored him taught him how to be him, made him into what he was. John Wayne, or, or Marion Mitchell Morrison, I should say, was not present when the studio people decided on what his stage name was. They named it after Anthony Wayne, who I think was a famous general. They pitched around some ideas and decided that John would be a good first name. John Wayne himself didn't have anything to do with it. Rest is basically history. He worked for the studio in B-movies, and still but, but John Ford liked him, made him the lead and stage coach. And I think had to suffer a little bit, like didn't get to make the movie with the budget he wanted, with the studio he wanted, had to kind of team up with an unscrupulous producer in order to make it with the freedom to put John Wayne in the lead. But he believed that John Wayne was going to be big and that John Wayne had star quality. And so he made this movie with John Wayne and then the movie was an enormous hit. And John Wayne then went on to three decades of, of great success. The big things that you should know about John Wayne, he did not serve in World War II. A lot of people have speculated that it was his guilt about that, that drove him. And there are different reasons. Like John Ford was in World War II, as we've talked about. He was doing some dangerous stuff. John Wayne wrote him multiple times saying, I'm going to, I'd like to come. I just need to shoot a couple more movies. He was also under contract, so the studio might have sued him. We don't really know whose fault it was exactly that John Wayne didn't serve. Maybe John Wayne was a coward and didn't want to. Either way, he didn't end up serving in World War II. That seems, maybe we're reading into this, but people have certainly speculated that it haunted him later in life and drove him to become pretty hard as nails, conservative, support the troops. He was hugely offended. He made a whole movie called The Green Berets, which he directed himself because he was so angry about the way that people treated the troops in Vietnam and the lack of support that they, they got. And he just became a real kind of crusty conservative type guy in his in later life. And you can definitely see that in his last the last phase of his career. But what else do we need to know about him? He was not a great guy. Three wives, numerous affairs. He wasn't the man that you wish John Wayne would have been. Sorry if that's a surprise to anybody. Some of his iconic persona was put on. Some of it wasn't. I think the drawl was real. The walk, Maureen O'Hara said, was something that he put on the walk was like he intentionally basically uh pinched his buttocks together so that he could get that classic walk. He was very he was a very savvy one of the first big stars I think that was completely savvy of of his persona and played to it, built his brand. Built his brand, ended up getting control of his later movies, understood what it was people wanted from him, understood what it was that he re- represented to people and wanted to play that, understood that he was an icon of masculinity. There's a famous story of Kirk Douglas taking a movie taking taking the role of Vincent van Gogh in a movie and John Wayne just saying to him, "Kirk, people we're we're two of the last of our breed. People look to us as an, as a, as icons of masculinity. You can't you shouldn't be doing this." And John Wayne largely didn't. I mean, he was you could you could call it humility, I suppose. He was willing to he, a man's got to know his limitations as a later uh, great <laughs> western star said. He was willing to <laughs>
0: Just uh <laughs> not in a western though. <laughs> no, not in a western. <laughs> in
2: a Dirty Harry movie. Yeah. John Wayne was offered Dirty Harry, turned it down. Hated it. Hated a lot of what Clint Eastwood did because Clint Eastwood was clearly playing John Wayne but being violent and cynical about An it. Anti-hero. An anti-hero. Yeah, he like, was the open nihilist version of John Wayne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And John Wayne didn't like it. There's that. uh One thing that's interesting about John Wayne. John Wayne. Aged very gracefully on film, I would say. You watch some of his later movies. I'm thinking in particular of McClintock here. He's playing the dad in that movie. Yeah. And now compare that to Cary Grant, same era, who's doing these dumb movies where Audrey Hepburn. I Char- mean, Char- uh, what's it called? Charade's a wonderful movie, but... You know, Audrey Hepburn's like 20 and Cary Grant's 60 and they're supposed to be a plausible romantic couple and you're supposed to just accept it. And Cary Grant did that his whole career until he retired. John Wayne actually played older gentlemen. went from I think one of the reasons we remember him as a great dad kind of a figure was that he went from playing the romantic lead to playing the dad character. And then the dad character was always the main character and the hero, but John Wayne actually allowed himself to age. He swapped out his black toupee for a gray toupee at a certain point, you know, which he was a bald guy, if anybody didn't know that. The Shootist. The Shootist, yeah, his last movie. You got the cancer! That's Jimmy Stewart's great line from that movie. (laughs) John Wayne actually coined coined the phrase the big C for cancer. Um, He was very open about when he got lung cancer. He was very open about it, which was unusual for a star at the time. So a lot of people did look to him as this kind of masculine icon. He didn't live up to it in real life. The famous thing about John Wayne, (laughs) there's a very famous quote about him in 1971. Frank Capra, the great director of It's a Wonderful Life and all that stuff, wrote his autobiography. He told a story of when he was in contract negotiations thinking about making a John Wayne movie. And he ended up talking to James Edward Grant, who was the screenplay writer for a lot of Wayne movies. And James Edward Grant told him very cynically what goes into a John Wayne picture. And the famous quote is this All you got to have in a John Wayne picture is a hoity toity dame with big that Duke can throw over his knee and spank, and a collection of jerks he can smash in the face every five minutes. In between, you fill it in with gags, flags, and chases. That's all you need. His fans eat it up. That's what John Wayne's screenwriter said about John Wayne's movies. And unfortunately, I would say that is... (laughs) A lot of his later movies, things like North Through Alaska, McClintock, a lot of the kind of dad John Wayne movies that people remember him for are these formula movies where John Wayne's just like hanging out with his friends and just being a man's man and smashing people in the face and treating the ladies a certain way and that's kind of what people associate with John Wayne now I, I think a lot of times and people kind of get a kick out of it ironically maybe or maybe not so i maybe, maybe some maybe some people get a kick out of it wistfully maybe some of our hemanologian listeners think that's how the world should work <laughs> yeah,
0: it sounds like a lot of uh, well what 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 that actually makes me think of is Steven Seagal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, in the kind of movies he makes. He's just some tough guy hanging out. He doesn't take anything from anyone. He beats yeah, yeah. the crud out of guys if he needs to. He he doesn't ever apologize or really even smile unless it's to be smug.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very much that. And I mean I think unfortunately, John Wayne was capable of more. The Searchers is a great movie, even True Grit. I mean, there's a lot of John Wayne movies that use his persona in a really careful, interesting way to tell good stories. But then there's also, especially later in his career, and I think maybe I would speculate that this had something to do with his chip on the shoulder about a liberal, progressive, civil rights, all that kind of affirmative action. You know, John Wayne had a chip on his shoulder about all that stuff, feminism, he hated it. And so you can kind of see that in a movie like McClintock, for example. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's done with a little bit of a wink, but he's also just like rubbing people's noses and like, um, what, just how politically incorrect and ridiculous it this all is. This is
1: entirely politically incorrect. People will love it and you will secretly love it too. You will secretly. And
2: McClintock, may. I think it came out in 63. So it, deal with it. It was a huge success. If you've seen that movie, you know that nothing happens <laughs> in that movie. It has two things it's famous for. He spanks Maureen O'Hara and there's a big mud fight where like 40 guys go sliding down mud and they're just slugging each other. That's Those are the only two things that happen. I think and I've the,
0: seen both those scenes. Yeah.
2: I but mean, not the movie. Yeah, people love those scenes and uh, uh, for better or for worse, I am a, a little bit afraid that there's some he-manologians out there that are just like, yeah, that's the way the world should be. And it's like,
1: well, I don't know. If I've. He's got to win her heart back by being a tough guy. Yeah, yeah. And by disciplining her. Yeah. Which he does. Yeah. That's and what That's women, what women really want and need. Yeah right? <laughs> Subdue the feminist. Uh, no comment. No comment, Ben. <laughs> show yourself to be uh, an alpha dog and then discipline the woman. Well, we just and did an episode them.
2: about how we're the stronger sex. We, that was the name of the episode. You got to keep those feminists in line. That's what our country needs, right? Mm-hmm. Right, boys? Yep, Arr! <laughs> maybe, or <laughs> <Arr>, maybe <laughs> no, false. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Yes, men should be strong, but also <laughs> and to discipline their wives. <laughs> yeah, but maybe uh, maybe not spank them. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe that might be. Yeah, that's for that's another episode. But the point is, John Wayne kind of just fed people, that kind of stuff with a certain part of his career. But he also did some really good stuff. Uh, the question people always ask themselves is, was he good, a good actor? I think that just entirely depends on how you define what good acting is. Was he a good actor? If good acting is transformation, then that's not what John Wayne did. He did not transform into anyone but John Wayne in any movie that he ever did, even The Searchers. He's basically just, they're using the same persona to tell a different kind of a story um, or to tell a different kind of a character.
1: But it give you very slight variations right on a theme
2: but if good acting is simply just existing being up there on the screen just
1: in a compelling and magnetic yeah if good acting entertaining way
2: is charisma if it's just doing things in a believable way even i think john wayne's wonderful he's very natural even in his stilted john wayne kind of a way but you buy it There's never not a moment that you're not just like there's john wayne on his horse doing whatever the scene is um you never find yourself saying oh well jason bourne would you know there's matt damon's stunt double making him look cool
0: no i buy i buy, i'll disagree i bought i always bought matt damon in those movies yeah, well, you're wrong. Glad we know. could have this conversation.
2: <laughs>
1: we could have this conversation.
2: Um,
0: Again. Right. <laughs> on the on Saturday. Here's the thing.
2: <laughs> Who would you rather get in a fight with, John Wayne or Matt Damon? In real life. In real life. In real life. Yeah, Matt Damon. Yeah, me too. Heck yeah. I buy that John Wayne had a certain kind of real masculinity that he was tapping into, whereas Matt Damon may well be the superior actor, but he's acting. John Wayne's never acting. That's that's the thing that makes John Wayne one of the greats, so in my opinion. So, is, so, so, yeah, It's compelling because you never actually catch him acting. He's just up there being. I don't know how else to say it.
1: The only times you do catch him acting are in some of the comedy bits.
2: Yes. And then it's just like so bad and so broad.
1: And that's why I
2: personally, as you can
1: it probably tell, it only serves to uh, actually undergird the quiet, disdainful hero right. character that he really wants you to believe in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's like the the real stretch is when he's trying to be funny.
2: Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true.
1: He's much more comfortable standing outside the door and turning his back and riding off into the sunset, being the guy who does the the dirty work for you.
2: Well, he can also say things like, he can do things that other actors would never be able to get away with. What's the line? I wrote it down, I think. We'll find him in the end, I promise you. Just as sure as the turning of the earth not every actor can get away with saying a Shakespearean line like that John Wayne can say it and you don't even stop to think about it but imagine if you gave <laughs> that line to Marty how stupid it would sound oh yeah or anybody else in the movie yeah um, imagine even if the preacher or someone with a little bit more gravitas in the movie said it if the don't... preacher if the preacher did it you know that the movie was poking fun at him right it would feel ironic right. or distance but John Wayne can just say it and it's like whoa so, not everybody can do that. I mean, it's really in
1: that sense, he's much more we talked about if it wasn't here, it was on the and I get it confused about yeah. a more British and Shakespearean school of drama, right where you you own and perform the lines, and you're not entering into you know a different character. you're not transforming as you said earlier, right,
2: yeah. Very much so. So yeah, that's uh, I guess that's all we need to say. The Searchers came out in 1956. It's obviously somewhere in the middle of the trajectory when the Western was coming, becoming self-aware, when people like John Ford and John Wayne even were becoming self-aware, when they were realizing we can't... When you watch even older John Wayne movies, the Indians are simply portrayed as other. They're the equivalent of Ultron's robots or something like, you know, it's just this foe to be defeated. You're not supposed to think of them I don't want when I don't want to say dehumanize because that sounds a lot meaner. It's actually just we're not even humanizing them to begin with. They're just
1: we have John Wayne and he needs somebody to fight that we can feel okay yeah. about
2: or that we just don't have to think about one way or another. Maybe dehumanizes yeah. is the way to put it. But here whether you're comfortable with how they portray the indians or not they're doing something they're trying to say something scar's a real human being maybe a wicked one but maybe a scary one maybe an inhuman one even but he's a dude so so is the indian wife that marty ends up with but then you have these weird scenes where it's just like we're shooting indians it's fun so the movie feels well let's just talk about it end of context
0: it's john wayne as ethan edwards who had a rare kind of courage The courage that simply keeps on and on, far beyond all reasonable endurance. Never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of
1: himself as brave.
2: Did the movie feel bifurcated or what?
1: Well, it felt like... Schizophrenic? Schizophrenic Schizophrenic. is the word that I would use, yeah. And, And it felt that way all the way, like from every angle that you can think of. Got this sort of, these sort of dark, subtle things that are happening in terms of plot or characterization, then you've got this like over-the-top, ham-fisted slapstick stuff. Mm-hmm. Old Moe's does not jive with mm-hmm. Ethan. You know, like Those are two very different styles of character. In the cinematography, the same way where you have these, what you and Ben already talked about, you know, the big sweeping shots... You know, the doorway scenes, the the coming up to the ranch after all that sort of thing. And then you've got this like, now we are on a cheap soundstage. And this is B-film type stuff.
0: Yeah, and you've got some scenes where he draws, I, I think he's very deft. The opening dramatic scenes where he draws out all the relationships for you. And then just some scenes are like, you didn't spend any time on this. You spent like 10 minutes. <laughs> the scene just happened. Like some of the shoot, the action scenes are like, Where is everyone? Wait a minute. I thought they were... (laughs) You thought they were at one place in space and then they're really... They're closer. That, that they're farther away. It all just...
1: the time. It's like the first chase scene. The Comanche are right on top of them, and then suddenly yeah. they're, they're like a mile not. away, and they've crossed the whole river and had time to set up and pick them off as they come across the river.
2: Towards the end, when Ethan, Ethan... and Marty show it in that cave, I didn't understand the geography of that. Um, yeah, there's yeah. all kinds
1: of like Ethan left hours ago so that Marty would be stuck behind. Oh and, right. Oh no. He just catches right up. Oh no. And then they. I gotta go catch up to him before he gets there. And and then. The very next scene cut to, they walk in the door together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, oh, he made up hours worth of time, and
0: yeah, there, there are a number of things like that, and the overall way that Ford tries to give you a sense of years and years passing. I was always unsure of where we were, and whenever someone said it's been two years, I was like, oh, it it has. Oh, okay, that's why I see Ford has been trying to tell me through his images. It's been two years. I just, he wasn't clear enough. Um, Marty's
1: walking around with his shirt off and the next day winter hits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, all, all that sort of thing is just like, well, we're in Canada. No, we're not. We're in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) And there's
2: stuff that's weird. Like if you just cut out all the stuff with what's Marty's girlfriend's name, like where we keep cutting back to her with the letter and all that stuff. If you, if you cut all that stuff out, maybe you actually would feel the passage of years better but you keep going back to this family and to her and her mom and pa, and they're all kind of exactly the same. And it's just like no time has passed, even though she's complaining about the five years. You just you don't really feel the weight of time as much in the movie, or at least no. I
1: didn't. He just really didn't care about the plot really working or the passage of time really being felt. But I think it's maybe, I should
2: say, I think it might be hard for us to judge because I read the New York Times, or I read a snippet at least of the New York Times review, and the guy was just saying... And the guy's not dumb. He's He makes fun of the movie for having these really stagey sets. Like, he's not completely without any understanding like like we have, you know? But um, <laughs> then he turns around and says, the movie is so packed with violent incident. It's just one thing after another. He hardly stops to catch his breath. Like, he just can't believe, like, what a thrill ride. Like, it's almost too much. The movie should have had more time. And it's just like, that's not the movie Whoa. I saw at all. So you, you realize, like, how much things have changed, how much more more exciting and suspenseful and dark and, crazy this movie must have felt
0: yeah it felt like Ford was experimenting with so I, I haven't seen enough westerns enough Ford enough any old Hollywood to really judge this but my sense was with things like the music he was experimenting with juxtaposition because of the I mean I've seen some old Hollywood films and I know the way that they score them and it's more ins- I don't know if I want to say more obvious than mm-hmm. what we do now because we do some pretty obvious things with music and film I mean that low like like drone bum, bum. we just do that all the time it's mm-hmm. so annoying but they had their own conventions and they sound heavy-handed to me um, and I've heard them but Ford would switch back and forth sometimes between like really really emotional triumphant to grim in like on like the yeah it's like a hairpin turn in the music and it just it was it was jarring in a way that felt unintentional but also partly intentional and it was like he was trying to figure out how to do that maybe I'm wrong.
2: I think he's probably a master and we're probably just not relating to it the way that people back then would. And that's fine. I mean, movies don't all have to age equally. I would say the movie just probably doesn't work the same way that it used to. And that's okay. A lot of people ripped off the movie. We can't help that. We can't go back in time and experience this story fresh. Um, Yeah, we
1: can't see those scenes as if we hadn't seen... Spielberg or Lucas or whoever. Right, I it's, think we should be true.
2: deferential to it and say a lot of people say this is a classic. It's great. It's influential. It probably does have some quality that we don't get, but um, I think it's okay to admit some. Like for example, I think the, the I think that's you just have a straight up horror movie scene near the beginning when the Indians are in the dark. I think that's probably really scary to people in 1956. Mm. And then for us, it's kind of lame. The girl just walks and there's the bad guy standing right there. The whole audience probably screamed back in 1956. And it wasn't because they were dumb. It was just because they hadn't seen anything like that. I mean, now we have really, Mm -hmm. we're living in a, Four thousand sophisticated bloody horror movies later, you're not going to have the same reaction. But I,
0: I felt mm. like there was sometimes, like even that scene, I was I felt able more to enter into the film yeah. what what Ford was trying to do, and I felt kind of the horror of waiting in the dark for something to come and kill your family. Right. So,
2: did you guys enjoy the comedic stuff more, or were you just <laughs> bearing with it to get to the serious Ethan Edwards story?
1: I I mean, we didn't talk about about baggage. No, we didn't. I soon. I brought a lot of watching John Wayne movies with my dad right. to this and so I you know all of the comedic scenes I have my dad in my head like my anything with old Moe's my dad thought was hilarious right. he mm-hmm. loved to point out you know when Mose gets his rocking chair at the end, and that sort of that sort of thing was just fun to him, right? And maybe he was trying to make it fun for me too, because it was kind of a dark, scary movie when you're a kid, but, right? But so I, you know, I, I I carried a bit of nostalgia for some of those things in this movie in particular, right? Really, still can't stand the suitor. Don't know that I ever could. Um,
2: <laughs> can't stand the suitor. Can't stand the songs. This, um, the
0: suitor actually made me laugh and Old Mose didn't. See, I'm exactly the opposite. Old <laughs> I, Mose to me I think felt... think my
1: wife laughed at the suitor. Oh, Amanda, he Amanda so, thought he was pretty funny. He was so, like,
2: yeah, maybe for an episode of um, <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies. He'd I be can't good.
0: think of anywhere else I'd rather be. It didn't cross my mind to go anywhere else. <laughs> oh, man, it got me.
2: Yeah, <laughs> real comedy gold there. <laughs> it's comedy gold.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, th- to be fair, there were a lot of things in the movie that Amanda thought was funny, ironically. Yeah, then,
2: even the suitor she may have been laughing at rather than laughing with John Ford. Oh, yeah, no, she was
1: laughing at. Yeah. She thought it was pretty funny.
2: Yeah, I think I enjoyed Old Moe's, although I'd argue Old Moe's almost could, you could find, you could see him in a C- Cormac McCarthy I or a Cohen Brothers. He's just a crazy old Western coot, like those kinds of characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe the performance wasn't the best, but Old Moses' <laughs> oh, conception great. was good. I liked Old Moe's. No, I, I stand know. by
1: Old Mose <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Jake. I, uh, thank you for giving me
2: courage. I stand by Old Mose too. <laughs> I don't know if I stand by Old Moe's or Come on, tell. Mose I don't know. Let's go home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Mose, Let's go <laughs> Not going to tell you. <laughs> Tell Marty. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> sticks his tongue out <laughs> I think the funniest part for me not with Old Moose might have been when the suitor Goofy Hicks picks up his guitar and starts singing to the girl and he sounds like this incredibly experienced singer mm-hmm. who's ready to perform in Carnegie Hall or something or the Grand Old Opry <laughs> not Carnegie Hall I don't know I don't know it just for a fact but it I'm, was gonna a ta- I'm gonna take a wild
2: guess that guy probably was a singer who was hired for his singing ability that's yeah. what he I was that's my assumption he, yeah. that's what I was thinking I mean then as now they would put a song in a movie so that they could sell the record and just a commercial thing we do it to to this day but
1: he's saying clementine didn't he wasn't it was it i
2: don't remember but i don't think it was clementine Did you guys notice that the wedding and the funeral had the same
1: hymn yes i didn't think about it but yep something or other right there i don't know clickety click 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 i'm looking up the searcher soundtrack (laughs) skip to my lose what it was that's right okay well in the hymn with shall we gather at the river yeah one of john ford's favorite hymns i think
0: I summed up the thesis of the movie earlier. It's about the reason you, you can be safe at home is because of the savagery.
2: If you stand over there, then you can be even farther from your microphone.
0: I I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> I think the movie's the, the thesis is that the reason we can enjoy family life and domesticity is because totally savage men or almost totally savage men like Ethan won over savage men like... Scar. The, the, yeah, like Scar, the
1: Comanche chief. Who were in fact slightly more savage, right.
0: slightly more savage, but also, I mean, the movie is a little bit sympathetic to Scar get that with, Where
1: the the I
2: mean, the one brutal massacre that we actually see is a bunch of dead Indian women after the Calvary has gloriously <laughs> that's right through.
1: And after Ford has spent time making us sympathetic to one of those women in particular,
0: right, right, and, and it, it is interesting that the that the that the girl Debbie is caught between two different domestic lives. Like, she's going to be Scar's wife, and that's her people, and she kind of wants to stay, but she also kind of wants to go back to the life she vaguely remembers.
2: I was kind of impatient with all the comedy stuff, this viewing. I remembered it actually being more charming than it was, because I kind of do associate it with dads and grandpas, and, you know, it's fun to just live in John Wayne's world for a little bit. But this time, I just wasn't, maybe I just wasn't in the mood for it. But it sort of paid off for me a little bit when, what's the name of, uh, whatever, um, the future wife of Marty suddenly reveals her herself as a casually hateful racist when she's mad at Marty and just says
1: Ethan's gonna kill her and he should and he
2: should and so you've got got this character that's been like in the light comedy portion of the it felt kind of jarring I mean it felt like you're watching this Shakespeare play where where you've got the fool doing silly stuff and then you've got the heroes doing dramatic stuff but it felt it almost felt like they cheated it in an interesting way like suddenly the somebody from the comedy section jarringly came over into the serious section
1: that whole family is really serving a purpose the whole way through and it it feels out of place cuz it's it's doesn't jive with the narrative of Ethan right but they're stand-ins for these good-hearted frontier people who came from, you know, we speak a different language, we have an accent, she was a school teacher, girl's basically alone out on the frontier, and Marty's like her one hope of becoming a wife and right. mother, and she's angry and bitter that he's out on this crusade, and then we get we get her anger and frustration, and we get her... He's gonna kill Debbie and he, and he should she's mm. been corrupted and then we also get that scene like out on the porch where ma comes out and spouts off her 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 profound line that basically is. The thesis of the movie, which mm-hmm. is we're Texicans, we're not from the old country anymore. We're Texicans now, and we maybe, live between life and death, or something. Right. Yeah, we Isn't yeah, it? it was like we live between life and death. It may take a hundred years, but maybe it'll take our blood and bones, our blood being spilled and our bones being buried in the ground as the seeds that give rise to a great Texas that is going to flourish and be awesome. You know, in that sense, you know, it's saying hey, you know, this is the story of your grandma and grandpa Mm -hmm. who paved the way for you to enjoy everything that you enjoy now. And it was hard. And it took men like Ethan...
2: But then it wants to go a little darker and say, and you don't care and you don't want to remember. And once they've done their dirty work, once they've borne the guilt of your society, once they've given into the the, the bloodlust and done what's needed to be done, you're going to be inside partying and the door will be shut on them and they'll just be the,
1: the outside. And in that sense, it's a commentary on World War II.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. All these guys came back mm. and... We, they paid
1: the price. They did the dirty work.
2: Was there actually a society waiting for them that wanted them that was ready to bear with their the horror and the terror and the stuff that they dealt with? Maybe not. A lot of people would say no. A lot of people would say yes. The movie is asking that question certainly.
1: Yeah, um, in young men, you know, dad made the sacrifices so the young men can be glib morons, right? Whether it's Patrick Wayne being the glib, clueless cavalrymen, or whether it's Marty.
2: Marty who never grows up and John Wayne never treats always with anything a petulant but a child. By the end of the movie he's still snatching the whiskey thing away from him, you know, grow up first or whatever he says.
0: Or or whether it's the Reverend Captain Samuel Johnston Clayton <laughs> is somewhat somewhat laughable, somewhat not laughable in between
2: like Ethan and the civilized world. I think the Reverend's laughable because he wants to pretend like he can be civilized. Yeah. And Ethan knows better.
1: He's trying to bring like the fact that he has to play both of those roles and he's trying to bridge that gap between Captain and Reverend. Mm-hmm. And that's a big that's a big part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like that all that tension is a is a stupidest thing to say in the world. It's a, it's intentional, you know? right?
2: Well, I when you put it that way, I think I basically reject the movies. I mean, it's really cool. Men, especially like filmmaker men that have come after, have loved this movie, and I think they love the existential kind of angst of it. The whole question of um, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, but we won't respect him for it you know, the outsider, all that kind of stuff. But if the thesis statement is, in fact, that what a man's got to do is go out there and bear the guilt and savagery of the world, and it will render him unfit for civilized life. I'm not sure that I agree with that. What do you guys think?
0: I don't know, man. I I think of Maybe this is glib, but I think of King David being the king with bloody hands who mm.
1: fought
2: and fought and fought.
1: God won't he didn't let him get build to, a temple that's because right. he's a man of blood. That's his right.
2: That's right. His son would be a man of peace. Yeah, that's such an interesting passage. That's an interesting one to bring up. But King David did get to build a house and live in relative peace for a good chunk of his life, minus...
1: And, and so he's... Screwed it all until up. until
2: he screwed it all up. But minus the screwing it all up, he did get to achieve some kind of something that Ethan didn't. I guess I always here's the, I'll just let tell you guys how I'm processing it. My brother was a marine. Now he's a police officer. I hate the sort of liberal progressive idea that my brother has to do the job of being marine, do the job of being a police officer, and then do the job of feeling bad about it. That because my brother is. A man with a gun, let's just say a man of bloodshed, for, for argument's sake. My brother's not actually a man of bloodshed. That would that's a, that'd be a silly way to talk about my brother. But let's just call him that. He he must, therefore, bear the weight of it. And it's like, no. No. He's doing a job. He's doing a job for his country. Now he's doing a job for his city. I don't know that he should have to feel bad about that. I don't know that he should have to bear existential guilt about it. Now is it, I'm not trying to take away the weight of things like killing, but I am trying to say when other John Wayne movies, cornier John Wayne movies, want to say that there's a certain glor- glory and joy de vive and good humor that comes with being in a cavalry regiment or being a warrior. I want to believe that, that some of that's true too. That it's not just all existential angst.
0: There is something about living on, about having to be a man who kills other people, though, that puts you on a kind of edge. I don't know. I mean, you you do have to pay a real price to go to war and kill. Mm, so the movies say. <laughs> it just seems like what I've heard from. Well, I don't know. <laughs> what, what do I know? But I but know. I but it's but it's you know we hear all about PTSD. Yeah. Um. And and the and the trauma, what it costs you psychologically, spiritually, to kill people, really kill people. I I had a and friend- and make no
1: mistake, that is what PTSD is about. It's not about the mm-hmm. horrors that you've seen other people mm-hmm. commit. It's about being incapable of dealing with the horrors that you've committed. Right? That's right. The,
0: a friend just told
1: me being surprised um, or shocked by yeah. what you've done.
0: Well a friend just told me the other week how he was with his family going through a certain southern city which I shall not name and they 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 happened to st- to be going through at 9 p.m. at night which he said I'll make sure I never do that again only in the daylight will I drive through that city and his uh their I guess their RV broke down downtown and a gang of men in downtown began to approach his RV with his wife and daughter inside and he just, he tried to deflect them verbally, but in the end, the guy kept coming, and it was clear he intended violence, and that there were a lot of guys waiting to back up his violence with more violence, so he drew his gun, he carries, pointed it at the guy's head. The guy shouted something like, cop, or there's some slang that indicates, it, cop, <laughs> because they assumed he was a cop. Everyone scattered, left the wife and daughter crying, and, and what my friend said is that his wife has, had always reproached him before for carrying a gun, but she said, I'm sorry, you're right think of what would have happened to us if you hadn't had a gun. Right. And my friend said he's been shaken for weeks just thinking about how he almost killed a guy, almost had to kill a guy. He just can't get it out of his brain. It's like tormenting him. He didn't even,
2: he didn't even pull the trigger. And that's not a reality that most of us have actually dealt with. Right. So should then all our movies be about how your friend has to bear the guilt of that, or can your friend, by the grace of Christ, get over it? Yeah. I think the latter- but Ethan can't and the movie's about how Ethan can't and I and in as that's what the movie's about I think I disagree
1: I'm not well, I'm not sure it's about him bearing the guilt so much I don't know it's like he Listen, decided maybe to this go is ahead. worth teasing out It'd because be what is it that he's for that's forcing him to be an outsider is it guilt and shame that he has to bear or is it something else that we haven't put our finger on yet because I wonder if that's really it I
0: think it, well
2: that's a good question but You just Um, think it's guilt. It's almost like corporate guilt. I mean, it's like... He's the scapegoat. Yeah, savage people are doing savage things to make this... It is sort of what Ben's thesis was. And we see the Calvary. They've decimated these women and children. We know that that's who Ethan is. We know that in order for this country to be born...
1: Whoever the bad guy is, that's what you do to the bad guy, whether you're being a Confederate soldier or you're being, what do they call the guy who in the Old Testament... The Avenger of Blood.
2: Right. The Avenger of Blood. And so we had this people group that we had to get out of the way, and we needed our Ethan Edwards, and we needed to make them. I mean, maybe I'm being too sort of liberal and societal and Marxist about all this, but Ethan Edwards is a type that is necessary for America to be born, and he's not allowed at the party at the end. He won't allow himself at the party. But you should be grateful for him. We should be grateful, and he's a hero. And even though he's been a pretty dicey anti-hero— through the movie,
1: you better thank you better thank God for the the Ethan's that right, and you're supposed to love him. And the music swells, the he picks
2: up Debbie, and it's like, oh, oh, thank goodness, you know, yeah, thank you, Ethan. He
1: he's the yeah.
2: I mean, it's uh, I I read one critic, and this resonated with me. Describe it as a Freudian nightmare of your dad trying to kill your sister. But that's what the movie is actually about. And in its darkest moments to me, that's how it feels. It's like John Wayne mm-hmm. is America's dad. And there's this just like completely innocent Natalie ad- Wood of all people. Natalie Wood is the girl and she's America's sweetheart, America's sister. And he is, he wants to kill her. And for no reason, it's not her fault. She's just tainted by this thing that happened. And it's a
1: nightmare. He is, he's the abusive dad who will beat you to within an inch of your life but who will kill anybody who lays a finger on you yeah, at the we, same time. we're doing
2: like, an episode in a couple of weeks like stock- on uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he spends a lot of the f- the first few pages of his book talking about the spankings and the beatings that he got. I mean, he spends an inordinate yeah. amount of time on it. The idea is that, what, his parents were scared, they perceived a threat, they perceived oppression.
1: Anytime he, they, you engaged in something that could cost you your life, he was going to be beaten to within an inch of his life. Yeah, he tell, and so because he tells his all these were stories about because he was going to
2: and so for the kids it was just a joke, you know. He tells stories about the kid in 5th grade that just got spanked in front of the class stuff like that because that just happened all the time because that's the world that he lived in. And that's I don't know exactly what the parallel is, but that's what we're kind of seeing. Ethan Edwards is the guy that's willing to do what's necessary that everyone else wants to just look away and pretend like, you know, we don't have to do that. And, and that's
1: and, established from the beginning.
2: We don't know he's, what he's, Ethan did he in the war. Knows,
1: he, we don't know what he did in the war. We don't know what he's been doing. We know it's bad. Right. And when he takes the posse out, first when they go after the cattle, he's like, y'all don't know how bad this could get. And then it gets as bad as he said it would. And then they go to find the girls. And then he's like, y'all don't really want to be here. Right. Y'all y'all aren't prepared to do what's necessary here and he gets incredibly angry you, when in the you know, do i have to draw you
2: a picture it's like yeah i
1: can bear this you can't you so can't. shut up go away
2: uh, i
0: actually i thought that that anger was more his own grief <laughs>
2: coming I mean, out of the guy you it, know it was mean? it was but i think also ethan's just the guy that gets it done yeah, he's not the yeah. he's not the brother that martha marries but he's right. the brother that she is attracted to
1: he's the brother that could have protected her she marries
2: dumb whatever his name is Aaron
1: gets killed yeah. And in, in that sense, he's always just playing dad who carries the weight and does the hard thing so that you don't have to.
2: Right. And he may not even like you. You know, he never warms up to Marty. He never warms up to anybody, but it doesn't really matter. He's doing what's necessary.
1: Yeah. He never warms up to Lauren's fiance or whatever. Right. Is it Lauren? Yeah. Laurie. Laura? Laurie. Laurie. Laurie.
2: The line that sticks out to me is when he shoots the Indian's eyes out, so that he won't be able to, he'll wander around looking for the afterlife forever. The guy says, Reverend uh, says,
1: What good did that do? Yeah. Do? And he says, By what you preach? By what
2: you preach, Reverend, nothing. It's not by what we believe, it's by what you preach. So Ethan, in that existential cool kind of sense, he's the guy. He doesn't even have to believe in God. He doesn't have to believe in fairy tales. He doesn't have to have any of the comforts that you know the less, the rest of us kind of prop up the facade of civilization. He's looked into the heart of darkness. He knows who he is. Yeah. He knows who the enemy is.
1: That's and he's willing to he's willing to take that one extra step that nobody's willing to take. Right. He's willing, and what's gonna get him victory in the end is eventually they will stop running and he will never stop coming. Right, sure is the turning of the earth. (laughs) Sure is the turning of the earth. uh,
0: There's one little caveat you can make to what you said about him, never warming up to his sidekick, Marty. Yeah. It's the scene where they first go back to Laurie's family, the, the Jorgensons, Jorgensons. Yes. And he tries to convince him to stay and take a job. There's actually a little bit of like fatherly. But there's also a you little could bit argue of,
2: you've been tagging along, annoying me. There's
0: both. There's both. I, I'm just saying. There's something like, why don't you just have a have a decent life? Just yeah. just leave it. I always there. remember
2: there as. Be, I guess I'm always surprised by the fact of how little they warm up to each other because it's just like movie convention. Right. But the two, yeah. but they should become buddies by the end, and they no. just like they don't. I wouldn't warm up to Marty either. He's a pretty obnoxious character, as it turns out. I assume you have to run out the door right now, right?
1: Oh, and I do need to. I do need to go like right now. So that's okay.
2: Well, guys, I guess this is a interesting movie to talk about. It's a fun movie to watch.
1: It was. It was fun. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's a good movie. It's. Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, it's and you don't know how. One of the interesting questions is what how how much is Ford aware of the fire that he's playing with? How much of it is intentional? Are we supposed to feel bad about the Indian woman dying in that one part? There's just a lot of questions that uh, it leaves you uneasy about, and I don't have all the answers. You have all the answers, Ben? I do, Nathan. Okay. But we don't have time. Oh, no. <laughs> we got to end the program. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is there anything else we need to say about this wonderful movie? Should people watch The Searchers, Ben? Yeah, I think they should watch it. Kay. I think it's a weird movie, but yeah. It's a very weird movie. Very schizophrenic. Yep, it's not like it had to be. I mean, Casablanca has humor, and it's not schizophrenic. It feels of no. a piece with the movie. Just to take an example of something
1: well, you watched. What's weird is that it does feel schizophrenic, but it also feels like it works. Like it does. It does for me at least. I I don't find the transitions between the slapstick and the serious, more nuanced stuff that jarring or jarring at all, except for a little bit with a uh, Daryl or whatever his name is. Daryl's the dumb. The, yeah, the, the dumps here. <laughs> yeah, 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 Or even the cinematography changes between beautiful sweeping scenes and chintzy soundstage stuff. Right. <laughs> like...
2: Some of it just feels like fun old Hollywood, like... And certainly if you're comparing it to like a Donovan's Reef or a McClintock or something, then this is like by the, on that level, it's like you get your John Wayne Hangout movie, but it's way more cool and Shakespearean and serious and yeah. than that. Yeah, people should watch this movie. Anything else we need to say about this thing, Ben?
0: I don't know, Nathan. It's not really a family movie. Not really a family movie. <laughs> I don't think so.
1: Eh. I don't know what. I, Jake, how? At what age would you show Peter this movie if you did? It's a good question. Haven't thought about it before now. You know, I remember watching it as a kid for sure. And I saw it as a kid, and I think all the of stuff it like sailed in over my head. The rape yeah, okay. stuff
2: just went over my head. They do it. It's you know, you don't see anything. That's bad. right. All right. Well, there's our ode to John Wayne, the great man among men, the great master of gender politics. And um, (laughs) uh, what else was he a master of? Just politics in general, uh, interpersonal relationships, dealing with your enemies, dealing with women, just an all around great guy, one that everyone can learn from, act exactly like he does, because that's what we believe here at Sound of Sanity. Well, Sound of Sanity was engineered by Benjamin Solzer, produced by Nathan Auverson, executive produced by Jacob Menzel, Nathan Auverson, like all fine Warhorn products. Until next time, should we let Ben do the catchphrase? That'll be the day. <laughs>